The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Actress Juliette Landau is best known for playing villainous vampire Drusilla in the classic series Buffy the Vampire Slayer. To the outside world, she had a fairy tale childhood, daughter of Oscar winning actor Martin Landau and three time Emmy winning actress Barbara Bain. Behind the scenes, her life was anything but a fairy tale. On this episode of Navigating Narcissism, Juliet reveals the painful impact of growing up with parents who are applauded by the world, but invalidated and antagonized her at home. Juliet knows all too well the parallels between narcissists and vampires, who often use charm to seduce, before feeding off others for their own gain, making them equally dangerous and devastating to deal with. From Red Table Talk Podcasts and iHeartMedia, I'm Dr. Romani, and this is Navigating Narcissism. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. Today, we're going to hear from Juliet Landau. So, Juliet, you know, I consider you, uh, you know, not only an amazing filmmaker, but I consider you a friend. So it's really, really so wonderful to have you here because you're going to give such a unique perspective and yet such a universal perspective on all of this. So thank you. 
Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here, and I consider you a very close friend, and it's been amazing getting to know you, and I can't wait for this conversation. Juliet, so many people know you from your role on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You played a vampire. Some people have seen your film. More people are about to see your film, I'm happy to say, but you know, some people have seen your film. What we're going to be talking about today is that you're a real case of life imitating art, imitating life kind of thing, because how these themes got captured in your movie. It's not just you who's been in a story about a vampire and made a film about a vampire. This is lived experience for you. And I think that your story was very much fueled by this personal story. And and I think what's amazing is you've been doing film festival screenings about this all over the place. And this film would spur four-hour discussions afterwards. I've been on some of them, so I know. So I want to start your story from the beginning, Julia, Mm -hmm. and let's go back to your own story. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and elements of your family dynamics? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was raised by two narcissistic parents. My husband, Deverell Weeks, was actually also raised by two narcissistic parents. And it's part of the reason in what you were talking about with the film, we wanted to make a movie that we hadn't seen before that really tackled the repercussions of growing up in this environment, how it affects every aspect really of your being. And if you don't address it, you're really primed to make destructive choice after destructive choice. In essence, it's a cautionary tale. And it's really about that, the feeling of how it gets into your very being and your very fibers. And you end up in a circumstance where you're so off balance a lot of the time that you'd have no sense of your own self, you're rife with insecurities. And I grew up in an environment where there was very much um, all of the tactics that go on in terms of suppression, scapegoating, gaslighting, um, all of those things. And so you start to really not trust any of your own input. I mean, if people are telling you that they love you, but they're doing behavior that is the antithesis of that, that is toxic behavior. And as a child, you can't actually process that and think, oh, this is them. It's their shortcoming. They're not able to do these things. You know, you think it's all you. You have to think it's you. You develop, I think, a lot of safety mechanisms to get through it that I would say later in life have not served me well. And that's one of the things that we've been wanting to talk about. So you say growing up like this, you get a distorted message of what love is, what caring is. What was the message you got in childhood of what love is? I didn't actually understand what love was at all until I met my husband. And when I experienced what it is like when you really have someone's back and they have yours and you want one another to thrive and excel and do well and expand and grow, that was literally earth shattering to me. I I thought that love was a very painful feeling and an unsafe feeling. And it wasn't until I experienced the complete opposite of it that it really became so paramountly clear to me. I guess the question, the next question for me then would be, how did your parents' narcissism show up in your childhood? I think it shows up universally similar for a lot of people, but there obviously is going to be a difference in every story. How did it show up in yours? Well, I think the thing for my experience was it was like this razor's edge where I became very perfectionistic thinking that perhaps I'd receive love for doing well. And yet 
I wasn't allowed to shine or outshine my parents in any way. So it was this razor's edge where you had to be good enough since you were reflecting on them, but not good enough to actually be your true fulsome self because that was a threat. I mean, it's interesting because even in getting ready for this interview and obviously in, in the movie that, that we've made, it's all such contrary action mm -hmm. to actually talk about this stuff, to actually voice the truth. You said something, though, so beautifully. Actually, no one has said yet on this podcast about a narcissistic childhood, which I really appreciate, which is you had to be good enough because if you weren't, then that didn't reflect well on them. But if you were too good then you had to be brought down so you didn't outshine them. That's such an important dynamic. And I think that obviously in a small child, that may not be as pronounced because a small child couldn't really outshine their parents, but they certainly could get a lot of attention or something like that. And certainly as you get older, I think of a narcissistic mother and her emerging adolescence daughter, obviously that youthfulness that that mother can't go backwards in time. There's a resentment mm -hmm. that can really grow up or a son who may be showing prowess in a way that the father once had, that you have to find that absolute middle ground. And, and nobody's really sort of spoken of that as clearly. So I really appreciate you framing it that way. I also think that there's something... You know, all, all children, all people have an inherent sort of, if you're not a person of these kinds of characteristics, mm -hmm. if you're not a, a narcissistic person, there's actually an inherent sort of light and truthfulness in children. And I think that that in of itself is threatening mm -hmm. to people mm -hmm. like this because they sort of work in the in the darkness you know they work in the shadows and they they work very methodically it's you know it's it's such a rigged game because and especially as a child you have no mm -hmm. idea about what rules you're playing but it was a methodical kind of thing like whenever you're given a compliment you're also given a slap mm -hmm. like everything is literally about keeping that structure of you being beneath them in some sort of way. So I think that children inherently have a sort of joy, an openness, a light. And I think that's threatening. It absolutely can be. And I, and I think that what you said, you get the compliment with the slap, you know, in essence, that conditioning for a child that you could be told something good and it would hurt you. Can you imagine now you go into adulthood, if somebody compliments you, you're going to be more likely to wince and pull away than you would be to lean into it. And this is where many survivors of parental narcissistic abuse will find themselves almost sort of stuck in this mediocrity that's definitely under what they could have been because that programs fear of again, the slap that comes with success, their body holds that fear. And so they live with that fear. And it sounds like that that was something that really plagued you until you found, and one of the metaphors of your film was that that love was the only thing that could conquer evil until you found true love. You finally were able to push back on these patterns within yourself. I personally feel like for me, my life bloomed hugely, as did my husband's, when we decided to have no contact mm -hmm. with our families. And I understand that that's not an option for everyone. Some people have children with uh, this kind of person. And even if they're separated or divorced, they can't uh, disengage or it's a family member that they don't want to or, or can't distance from. Um, but, you know, we should be able to talk about this as a healthy and viable option mm -hmm. uh, as well and not be sort of told, how dare you for doing that? And I do know that for, for both of us, um, our lives just grew and grew. 
you know, and, and in that way, it's sort of uh, that old parable about the wolves, like which one you're feeding, the, the positive stuff or the negative. I personally feel like going toward evil or trying to engage with people like this, malignant narcissists, is not healthy or worth the time. If you are able to completely stay away from it, it's been for both of us undeniably a healthier thing. So interesting how you put it. And I don't disagree with you, Juliet, that no contact is often viewed, I don't know, I don't want to say suspiciously, but with a little bit of side eye, you know, this idea of somehow familial estrangement is this terrible thing that must always be addressed. Yeah, I hear the disclaimer. I make it all the time about most people can't go no contact. But I will be frank with you. I remember seeing some data. There's a group I work with in Israel that has sort of looked at some of the data around narcissistic abuse. And one thing they found was that when people going through narcissistic abuse were asked to say what works best to help them heal. Psychotherapy came out, number one, but number two was no contact. So it mm -hmm. works. I'm telling you as a therapist who's worked with so many people who've gone through this, no contact absolutely works because in essence, it's almost like you think of it as a toxin and it's, it, let's say a toxin, if you breathe it in, it'll make you sick. Obviously not breathing it in is going to be good for you. So I, I do think that people have to feel supported when they decide I am going to go no contact. I, as a therapist, deeply supportive of it. I think where some people struggle is like they'll sometimes say, I slipped and I contacted. And I always want to remove the shame from that because things happen, right? Family members get sick, Absolutely. funerals happen, whatever. I said, this isn't sobriety. It's not like you're getting dinged for having contact. But if when you have that contact, to have the radical acceptance, realistic expectations, all of that. But to go no contact... It does work. Now, there is an element of your story that I think, you know, some listeners may know, many may not, is that you grew up in a famous family and that changed the game quite a bit. I mean, that changed the rules. What's your take on that? It almost is like a, a magnifying lens with what everybody that grows up in a narcissistic family dynamic experiences. There's a disparity between what is publicly presented and what goes on behind closed doors. So I think the difference really is that the net of that is wider. So the projection that's going out into the world is a wider group of people that are seeing what uh, my parents wanted to be projected uh, and versus the, the private life. So I think that the difference is that People have a relationship uh, potentially to my parents because they like them on a TV show or they like them in a movie. And I think one of the things that's important for us to remember is that things can coexist. So you can be a fan of someone's work and also know that they're not a good human being. And so one, you know, isn't necessarily related to the other. Many people love Norman Mailer's books. He stabbed his wife at a party. Both things coexist. You can think that the book um, is of interest and know that the man was not a person. So I think that's really uh, the difference. Other than that, I think all of the, the experience and the sort of tactics are very, very much the same. And I, I do love that that word you used earlier of radical acceptance, because I just think that's the, those words. I think it's such a a real thing. Looking at the truth is is 
exceedingly painful. I, I mean, I feel like you, I went, we both, my husband, and I both, you know, you went through a mourning process really for the childhood that you never had. But it's so much better to look with radical acceptance and truth of what the reality was to be able to move on from it than obscuring the truth, you know? Absolutely. And I would say, you know, the way you grew up, again, famous parents, iconically famous parents, that you, in essence, experienced what I'm going to call societal gaslighting. And if anything, and be shamed for having had your experience. Well, this has got to be a Juliet problem because they're, like you said, all these things that people project onto them, onto their characters, all of that, that it, I, I would say many, many people forget even your, what you had was very unique. But even if you're your father is the pastor in the local parish and every mm-hmm. beloved pastor, yep. the beloved little league coach, the the principal at the school, whatever it is in a small town, everyone's think, what a great person. You're so lucky this person, this great teacher of the year is your mom or that, you know, that pastor is your dad. And that person, that child, then it multiplies what you were talking about before in terms of that those survival behaviors like this has got to be my fault because everybody loves them and they're famous mm-hmm. and people pay all this money to see their movies. And, you know, I mean, I remember when I originally learned of your story and, and we talked more, I thought, how does somebody survive this? You had this story where nobody would have believed you because they had to have a they had to have a. They had to be able to hold these icons up to what they needed them to be. So it was easier to criticize you, Juliet, than it was to say, wow, maybe these people were just really cruel to their their child and did tremendous harm to her. So I think that there's a unique form of gaslighting you experience that most of us would never understand it on the scale you experienced it. I think it's interesting what you were talking about, because I was thinking right when you were saying that about the pastor or people in the church. And I think what what's interesting with all of those scenarios is that people develop, like part of how they develop their public persona is really, I think, equally to hide <laughs> the private mm-hmm. behaviors that are going on and to like it's almost like this this balance of the scale so you know they go out of their way to be exceedingly mm-hmm. nice to people that they don't have close intimate relationships with and and sort of f- further that uh public narrative and you know it, it's it's interesting because i agree with you that there's such a thing where it's like also that that sort of societal pressure of like how dare you talk about this and luckily that's that's changing the thing that i found really interesting when we started screening the film is h- how many people actually came forward to me and said that they uh, uh, two things happened. One is either someone said, you know, oh, I had a wonderful experience where I met your dad in a supermarket and he talked to me for four hours. And I was like, that's, I'm wonderful. I'm so glad you had that that great experience with him. You know, he was furthering that sort of perception, you know, in that engagement. And I truly was glad that they had a wonderful uh, encounter w- with either my mother or my father. What I found, though, is that how many people have said that they actually 
suspected that. Like many people that had worked with my parents came forward and said to me, like I, I sort of knew that this was their natures and I've had some experiences with them that, that furthered that. I also remember that a family friend, I said something about, you know, it wasn't, it something about initially before he saw the film, I'm not sure this will be your cup of tea and whether, you know, what the what was on the inside was very different than the outside. And he said, Who, whoever said the outside of your family looks so mm. great. <laughs> so it was actually interesting in, in opening up the discussion, what got reflected back at me uh, wasn't uh, as much as I expected to be only what, you, what you're talking about. You know what, though? That in its fashion then is a strange form of blessing because I do think many people grow up in these homes, come out of them, and nobody ever says that to them. And mm-hmm. then you had both sides of the scale. You had not only sort of this nightmarish experience of probably of what you were going through and thinking, well, no one's going to believe me. They're famous. They're powerful. But then as time went on, people actually shedding some light on it. And that helps. Yeah. And you know what? Further to that point, I think one of the things for... Uh, my husband, Deverell, and I, there was something about each of us witnessing the other's family and corroborating mm. what we saw. I mean, I remember with Dev, he kept telling me story after story after story about his father that were really heinous, disturbing, awful stories, toxic, terrible stories. And every time he'd tell me a story, he would say, but he's so sweet. And then he'd tell me another terrible story and he'd say, but he's so sweet. Mm. And I actually met his dad and we went for a walk in the park and he started telling me yet another horrendous story. And he said, he's so sweet. And I said, you know, all the stories that you've told me and in meeting him, I don't see a sweet man. Do you have some stories that are sweet? And he stopped and he was thinking and he was thinking and he said, I... I don't. The trauma-bonded language gets so embedded into how we speak about invalidating people in our lives that it becomes reflexive. Juliet describing her husband's tendency to always end horrific stories about his father with, but he's sweet, is actually pretty common. It's that small child that never quite goes out of us and that had to keep justifying bad parental behavior for survival reasons. However, it also results in us maintaining a distorted representation in our mind. The cognitive dissonance makes this so difficult because so many inconsistent things pile up. I have a father. My father was cruel. Sometimes he did nice things. When we can see it clearly, it can feel uncomfortable, but at least it's more honest. And I think that moment for him was a real, like, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. he's not sweet. I'm justified. And the same thing, I remember we had a holiday. I looked over at Dev and the expression on his face was how I felt growing up. Like he looked so, I I used to do this thing I called clicking out Mm -hmm. and he looked completely numb, overwhelmed, miserable. I saw his face and I was like, oh my God, that's like a mirror of how I felt my whole childhood. And again, it was that corroboration of an outside witness. (laughs) And I think because we were already starting the work of looking at what 
our backgrounds were and sort of experiencing this connection that we'd never had before. What Juliet is calling clicking out, this sort of numbed and overwhelmed expression many people in antagonistic and narcissistic relationships have, is almost like a low-grade dissociation where a person has to almost distance from themselves and from situations because it is so psychologically taxing. For people who can't escape these relationships, this clicking out can mean clicking out of their lives, being distracted, not being present, and being detached. We'd had other relationships, but we never had that real true love and support because we were not picking people of that ilk. We were primed to pick other people mm-hmm. for a while that were, were similar to our, our environments that we were raised in. And I think that the validation of that with one another, and it's one of the things that we've had with the movie, The movie is called A Place Among the Dead, and we have this amazing community that has built up around the film called, uh, they've named themselves the A Place Among the Deadheads, like the Grateful Dead. (laughs) So many people have said the movie has changed their lives, which is humbling, and they have literally, we are watching these Uh, this group of people, which is probably now about 200 hardcore A Place Among the Deadheads, whose lives are blooming and expanding. One gal I was actually emailing today who's literally like moved out of her toxic house with her parents, gotten a job in the field she always wanted to, just got a promotion, has been seeing a therapist that is amazing and understands this. Like it's, and just seeing this community People are creating art and their music and sharing them, sharing it. And, and each time, like to just see the growth that's happening has been so amazing. And I think part of it is that validation of other people going, I, I get mm-hmm. this. I see it. And, you know, the thing about narcissistic abuse and psychological abuse is it's not physically manifested. Mm. So that's one of the things is that when other people are like, no, no, I understand this and I see it because sometimes people find it easier to understand physical bruises than they do the the emotional toll that gets taken. Yes, because that idea of corroboration, of validation, I mean, that's the idea of somebody got into good therapy, that somebody's saying, yeah, this is really happening. This is not you. And just simply even that moment of validation is where I've seen the beginning of real healing for many clients. At what point, Juliet, did you have this, I don't know, this awareness, this framework that your parents were narcissistic? When did that come to you? And how did that come to you? Well, I didn't for a long, long time. And I think what happened is, I think it was right just before developing the idea to do the movie. And we we were t- sort of talking about that we had come to a place in ourselves, truly, where we weren't really thinking about our families of origin anymore much. We were had built our own family with each other and with our friends. And that's one other thing I wanted to mention is as, as you know, started becoming aware of this, you know, you start n- noticing other people in your life that ultimately, once both of us had no contact with our with our families, it was, you know, some of the people that we had thought were friends, we realized, oh, this is the same mm-hmm. dynamics. It's literally that same thing is going on. So there was a certain sort of, okay, those aren't the people I want we wanted to, to surround ourselves with. So, you know, we've now created this incredible group of friends. And we had a therapist that once said, you know, blood isn't always mm-hmm. Thicker than water, sometimes it's just stickier. Uh, Great. (laughs) 
I had never heard this adage of blood not always being thicker than water and sometimes it's just stickier. I mean, that was some fire from their therapist. We make a lot, often too many allowances for bad behaviors within family systems and familial enablers can double down on toxic patterns in a family. This stickiness of this blood makes setting boundaries all but impossible. And I cannot wait to share this new take on the blood is thicker than water with the survivors that I work with. And so I think that at that moment when we started really looking at it in therapy, um, we had an incredible therapist and he really did understand all of this. And he, he had given us a book called People of the Lie by M. Scott Peck. And the movie is largely based on that book. The case studies and his definition of evil, malignant narcissism, so profound and so powerful. And I related so strongly to so many of the case studies in there and was like, that's me. That's my experience. That's my experience. And so I think that moment of that, and I read a book um, called The Fantasy Bond that he had suggested as well, which is all about the idea that you can't think it's your parents, so you basically take it all on yourself. And the other thing about growing up in this kind of environment is that it's rife with fear and anxiety, because I know you talk about this, but um, at the root of all narcissistic people is, is a lot of insecurity. And also the, they have a constant fear of exposure mm-hmm. to the outside world, but also to themselves because mm-hmm. they're busy sort of obfuscating the truth from themselves of who they truly are. So you grow up in such a sort of fearful environment and you take a lot of that stuff in. So I think it was probably a, a few years before we started sort of developing the idea for the movie was in reading those books and and talking with our therapist and it just being like, aha, yes, this is exactly what we grew up in. I mean, it's like when I've read a number of your books, Dr. Romani, and and there's so much of it where you're just like, check, Mm -hmm. check, 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 you know, everything that you say in terms of looking out for and everything. And you're just like, yes, I've experienced that. Yes, I've experienced that. Yes, I've experienced that, you know, and I think that that's why, um, you know, the books and that you've written and this that you're doing, like, it's so helpful. And the videos that you, you put out on YouTube and we've done it through art and entertainment. There's so many people that have either said, oh, I knew this was going on in my life. And it's so amazing to see it and experience in in this visceral way. But there's so many people who said, oh my God, my life clicked. The gal I was talking about earlier, our deadhead that I was corresponding with uh, uh, today, earlier today, uh, she literally is like, I had no idea. And then I saw the movie and my life went Mm -hmm. boom, like it clicked into place. And I I, I couldn't be more thankful because I I think I would have ended up you know, committing suicide, Mm -hmm. literally, like she was in such a toxic, toxic environment. What's interesting to me is you figured it out later in your life. I mean, later in your life, relatively speaking, meaning that was only in the last Mm -hmm. few years. Until then, until you had that framework, what did you think was happening with you and your parents and that relationship? Like, how did you make sense of it? I thought, first of all, that my mother was my best friend. Mm -hmm. And I really always knew in myself in terms of I knew something wasn't right as a kid. If I even think of my childhood, I never can think of it without this pervasive sense of really depression and 
nauseousness. I knew I was not in a safe environment. I knew it, but I had to keep that truth for myself. It was way mm -hmm. too scary to mm -hmm. look at. And I think it really was having, a, for me having like a partner not being feeling so alone in the world where I felt the safety to really take off the blinders and look at it. But in myself, I really, I knew it. I just was tap dancing away from it, and if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, it absolutely does make sense. And I think that, you know, even as you put it, you felt it. Like you thought about my childhood. I felt depression. It's interesting to me you felt nausea because to mm -hmm. me that's almost like being in such a toxic environment made you sick. My conversation with Juliet will continue after this break. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you grew up like this. You... You felt it almost in your body that something wasn't right, but you came through adolescence and you actually went into the entertainment industry, which is one of the most invalidating industries a person could go into, especially as a performer. How did how you grew up affect your the early evolution, not only of your career, but even of your adult relationships? Well, I think it affected a lot of things in that for a long time, I was not picking healthy people to be in relationship with. One of the things that we sort of look at in the film is, is that idea of, you know, replaying the unwinnable parent or the past trauma in life and how we do that over and over and over, hoping for a different outcome. But in fact, when you do that, you don't get a different outcome. It actually just gets worse and worse and worse. We've been exploring that idea in our movie, and I think it speaks because we had the experience of doing that. It, it's interesting because, I, yes, the, the entertainment industry is, is obviously has a lot of rejection and is invalidating, as, as you say, and obviously is also rife with narcissism. And now it's an exciting thing. I'm doing sort of contrary action to, to what I was raised mm -hmm. to do. So even sitting here and having this conversation with you so publicly mm -hmm. about this, making a movie, I mean, you know, neither Dev nor I were, we were told we couldn't really do anything. So yeah. the fact that we had 150 people, you know, crew working for us and we helmed a movie and I directed it and co-wrote it, co-produced it. I'm starring in it. We got incredible actors to come on board, Gary Oldman, Ron Perlman, Ron Robert Patrick, Lance Henriksen, best-selling author Anne Rice, appearing for the only time in a scripted movie, all these people, that in of itself is contrary action. And then 
the actual subject matter of it to actually go like take that subject matter head on and say, you know, it's worth it. This mission is sort of bigger than me and my story and I want to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think I love that concept of contrary action. I think one of the challenges when it comes to contrary action, I'm going to do the opposite of what I was told I could or couldn't do, is that a lot of people feel like an imposter. Did you ever feel mm -hmm. like that when you were? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, Absolutely. I think that's the challenge. And that's another contrary action, right? We make these agreements with, with our parents and these are spoken and some of them are tacitly unspoken, but these agreements really become the thoughts in our minds and the the mantras that we live by, at, which inform our choices and, and can lead to destruction. And in, in the movie, my character is making destructive choice after destructive choice. Hopefully, I'm not doing that in life anymore. But as we've been talking about, I was for a really long time and I was ignoring all the red flags and doggedly sort of going forward and listening to to those those thoughts and those voices. And the whole point is that, you know, as adults, we can break those agreements. I think it's important also to, to think about the fact that these poisonous seeds can be planted, you know, obviously it, by parents and family members, but also in love relationships or at school by teachers and peers. And, you know, once they're planted, they, they just fester and fester and grow. So it's really about that contrary, you know, action and changing some of that that thinking that goes on, which obviously always will rear its head. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of what you're talking about has been framed. If we look at Dr. Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion, she calls it the inner critic, you know, and it goes beyond. I mean, the inner critic is a pretty beastly vampire-like quality in a person who is um, surviving from narcissistic abuse, especially childhood narcissistic abuse. But one thing that Neff and others who've done work on on this idea of the inner critic point out is that once we can recognize that our inner critic isn't just there to torment us, but actually exists to keep us safe, we may be able to say, okay, inner critic, I see what you're doing, hon. Thanks. Let's dial that back. Okay. And, you know, but it was really for the child to feel like when it comes out of childhood, it was this idea that if I'm the bad one, then they're not the bad one. Yes. And when you can see this inner critic for what it was trying to do for you, all of a sudden we can become not only compassionate towards our inner critic, but compassionate to ourselves, which is such a crucial element of healing from narcissistic abuse. You had played a vampire in a very successful television show, Drusilla in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. In doing that, you kind of obviously were very immersed in the vampire world. That's where there was a lot of time spent in that. In playing that role, did that give you any insight? Did you connect the dots, basically, by paying, playing Drusilla and Buffy? What, did you ever connect the dots between vampires and what was happening in my family? And or, like, did all of that ever come through for you? I'm, I'm just curious because it seems like that was the birth of an idea that became a place among the dead. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I don't think it did at the time. I mean, it's mm. funny because even with how I was, I sort of uh, approached the character of Drusilla, I never thought of her really as a vampire as such in that she was a very multifaceted uh, character and she had a lot of trauma mm -hmm. in her background, but also had like this epic love story that went on for 200 years. And, and so there was so much dimension to her that my, 
main thrust was to how to flesh her out in a way that was mm -hmm. human so that you would relate to her and, and sort of pull for her, even though she is the villain, but because she was written and created and had 360 degrees uh, where sometimes a villain can be very one-dimensional. So I, I don't think I, I thought of it in a cognizant way. So I want to talk about your film, Place Among the Dead, which is a vampire film. It is a, yeah, it's a vampire film. I wouldn't say maybe in the horror genre, but it's also very much a narcissistic abuse film, which of course that's the part I was like, oh, I see it, I see it, I see it. So one of the sort of techniques, tools, if you will, you used in the film was these internalized voices, like you said, that running tape that people have in real time. And some of the things that your, your character, the, this woman <laughs> who is trying to save others and in trying to save others is, is putting herself in harm's way. And these internalized voices of her parents are things like, we need you to be a mess. I need you to be confused. There is something wrong with you. You are unlovable. Never outshine us. You're to blame. And those lines, when I pulled those out of the film, like, my goodness, that is the ideation of the vast majority of survivors, even if this didn't happen to them in childhood, mm -hmm. even if this happened to them in an adult relationship for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about the film, A Place Among the Dead, and also even take a step back is that, you know, your whole you've, you've spent some time in the vampire genre and, you know, you, you were on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You you were in that vampire world for a while and then mm -hmm. use that metaphor, but it was so apt. And then combining it with this idea of that running self-talk that's not even our voice, mm -hmm. it's theirs. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was what was so powerful about your film, because we often think like, oh, I'm just talking to myself badly. I'm like, nah, I think it's them talking to you and it's just playing in your head. So talk to me about where the film came from, how you came up with ideas like that, your vampire journey, as it were. Absolutely. What you said resonates so much in the opening part of the voiceover. It actually starts with the parents whispering the th thoughts, uh, all of them, like what you mentioned. And then there's a point where the character's voice picks them up. And so you're, it exactly isn't, you know, they've been almost like planted in there and it's in her voice. The movie is a, a genre bending art film. And, you know, we wanted to use genre for a number of reasons. First of all, we wanted to, to make an entertaining movie. And I really wanted to lull the audience into a sense of safety using a genre that they love and tropes that they feel comfortable with to talk about unsafe and uncomfortable ideas. The whole movie is scripted, but I blur the lines of reality. So all of the known cast play alter ego versions of themselves and every single one has a tie to vampire material. So I play Jules and obviously I was on Buffy and Angel and Gary Oldman was in Bram Stoker's Dracula and Ron Perlman was in Blade 2 and Anne Rice wrote the Vampire Chronicles interview with the vampire and such. And so it was a way to bring in all of our histories and truly I felt like the vampire is the perfect metaphor for the ultimate narcissist. It's a being which drains all for its own needs, 
Vampires mesmerize and have people in their thrall. Narcissists are often exceedingly charismatic. You have to invite vampires in. When we're talking about narcissists in the family, you don't invite those people in, but you do invite others of that ilk once you've been primed to, or if you get into a love relationship and you're not even from this background, you invite that person into your life. Vampires do not change. They stay exactly the same. Narcissists do not change. Vampires cannot see themselves, their own self-reflection in a mirror. Narcissists have zero capacity to self-reflect. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And, and really in the movie, what we're exploring is the whole spectrum. So from the systematic, consistent snuffing of spirit, light, liveliness, all the way to the heinous snuffing of life. And the the Darcel character in the movie, he personifies the the most diabolical, the, the darkest end of that spectrum. In fact, Darcel means darkness in French. And in the movie, you're never quite sure, is he a vampire? Or is he a serial killer who emulates a vampire? It doesn't matter because the traits are so much the same. And what we're exploring, we talked a little bit about this earlier, is that idea how we often just replay the unwinnable parent or the past trauma in our lives and we keep wanting desperately this other outcome that we're going to win this time and in fact when we do that we don't it just gets worse and worse and worse and we put ourselves in in harm's way in more and more dangerous situations you know i never even thought about all the other metaphors you were sharing about how vampires parallel narcissists. A big one, though, and when I watched the film a second time, third time, I got was the idea that the vampire is forever young Mm -hmm. and they attempt to steal youth, right? Their victims are always young. Mm -hmm. And I forgot that element of it because that also is that piece of when we think of the narcissistic vanity, mm-hmm. how important in it and their their quest for eternal youth and however they can get that, whether that's by changing their appearance or how they dress, how they present to the world, the age of a partner, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. they they try to stay young. And that idea to me of stealing youth, in essence, is stealing innocence. Mm-hmm. They take people and they distort what love and, and goodness and kindness are in a relationship. And the people who come out of narcissistic relationships will say, I don't think my conception of love is ever quite going to be the same. I don't think it'll ever quite be so innocent or trusting. So that that theft of the vampire of youth and their their sort of their commitment to youth was a piece I didn't get until this most recent viewing. And it also that thing you're saying, that thing of literally being sucked dry, mm-hmm. literally, you know, mm-hmm. in, in these kinds of relationships. Mm-hmm. And the, the other element of it that I think why to use this particular genre is also to show how harrowing this experience truly is, how destabilizing it is, how we really use a device because you're inside Jules's POV for a lot of the film. And we want the viewer to experience what it's like, how disorienting it is when and confusing when you're engaged in this kind of relationship. Not only is she losing herself, she's becoming more and more sort of dysregulated and other people around her are saying, 
what is wrong with you? And I thought that was an interesting thing, too, is that the sense of for many survivors, as they as they'll feel that sometimes their own mental health is deteriorating while they stay in these relationships or they think about these relationships, other people around them will say, OK, you need you need to slow your roll. Like, what is wrong with you instead of because I think the direness of it mm-hmm. is something that people don't see it. They don't see the, the they don't see the metaphor of the Darcel of the of the terrifying person. And one of my takeaways from watching that character was it also felt like Darcel, the the vampire killer, was actually at an unconscious level, and I think you used imagery to create that, a composite of both of your parents. Because mm-hmm. it is that thing of like where you're, you are repeating, you're mm-hmm. repeating mm-hmm. and you're going mm-hmm. toward someone that does not have your best mm-hmm. interest at heart mm-hmm. and you're doggedly going, going toward it. And so absolutely, you know, it's interesting because one of the things when we were hiring our crew, I think there was like 150, 153 people that we were hiring. And Dev and I literally, after we met each person, we said to ourselves, to each other, do we like this person because they feel like they're going to be collaborative and creative and wonderful, or do they feel sickly familiar? Mm. And so we like them. And we actually didn't hire a few people. We were like, no, I think that's sickly mm. familiar. And we we didn't have a bad apple in the bunch. Like we did the best job with that. But it literally took concerted effort saying, wait a minute, is this because it feels that awful but familiarity. And so, you know, we really employed that in in vetting people. And it's something that I think to this day, we sort of continue in any kind of business or or, uh, personal relationship as well. I wish this is something that everyone could take away because what you're describing is really discernment. Is this, do I feel safe and heard and respected and seen by this person or is my draw to this person this sort of sick familiarity and the other thing to pay attention to is do I feel any drive to sort of fawn to this person or submit to this person even if they're you know they, they're they lower than you on any kind of hierarchy you'd say is there some like do I feel like I'm trying to win them over mm-hmm. and I think once you feel that that is when a survivor really is going to be like, ah, oh, yeah, no, there's some, there's something happening here, and it's ancient, and it's not about this this conversation. There was another couple of other things, that, some themes that came out in your film that so captured the experience of survivors. One is in the very beginning of the film, and you're talking about narcissistic parents, and you're narcissistic parents. You were talking about how your father and mother would refuse to see you. And that there would be no reflection of you in, in this case, you're saying in his eyes, that you're talking about your father. Mm -hmm. And I think that captured such an important theme. And another thing you brought up is this idea of your character saying, I'm so tired. Mm-hmm. And that really struck me because I have to say universally, that is what so many survivors say is that I am so tired and it's not tired. I need to go to bed. You know, it's not tired. I need to take a nap. It's not tired. I need to go on vacation. It is soul tired. It is existential tired. And you really captured that because that's such a universal survivor experience. But there was one line you gave, which I thought was so important. You said, in my desire to be loved, I am willing to be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that line, because I have to say there was a real I had to st- I stopped the film, went back and said, I want to make sure I heard that right. It was so powerful and profound. And it so captured the experience 
of survivors who often then feel shame mm-hmm. oh, for wanting to be loved and then sacrificing themselves and saying, well, maybe this is my fault. Mm-hmm. So can you break that down? Because I thought it was such an important line in the film. The first thing I was going to say is it, it's interesting because that was an actual poem with no reflection of me in that part. It was his, his eyes, but it was about both parents. It is that thing of your uh, soul having been sapped so much and having been sort of uh, suppressed for such a period of time and you giving yourself up and subjugating any of your needs to take care of other people's needs and and feeling like a you know a, a completely wilted flower because you haven't nourished yourself at all or had any nourishing. When did you come into awareness that this was the case? It's interesting. We've been talking about that idea of like, when do those thoughts come up? I mean, they come up obviously when when you're stressed out and things aren't going well. They come up when things are going really, really well because you think you don't deserve it. You know, we've been talking about like, oh, these, these anxiety provoking thoughts, this false self, like they rear their head, these thoughts at all different times where you've been sort of conditioned to if you're feeling open and joyous, that that's a very unsafe place to be. And so I think that very young, I knew that I had to do whatever I could to take care of other people. And, and you know, you live in a sort of vigilance as well. And so you're not only downloading like all the fear that goes with that, that they have, you're also your own fear of like needing to be taken care of as well and feeling unsafe. So you're in sort of this constant stressed situation, fight or flight to some degree. The exhaustion of survivors of these toxic relationships is known to anyone who has been in one. And Juliet makes the point really well here that you are going back and forth between anxiety and depression. It may not even be at a level that others notice, but life in these relationships, especially growing up like this, is a vacillation between disappointment, fear, helplessness, hope, confusion, and worry. Over time, that takes a toll on a person's psyche and leaves them not just tired, but existentially exhausted. And I think you're ebbing, like when I talked about my childhood and feeling a sense of depression, you're ebbing between anxiety and depression, basically, um, which is why it's so tiring. You're, that's sort of where you're, you are and, and in those two states most of the time. So I think pretty young, I knew that. I don't think I knew it as clearly as the line states it, but I think I knew it and very early on was like, I need to subjugate my own needs and I am willing to do anything to potentially get, you know, get this, uh, like even a crumb of of Mm -hmm, love. mm -hmm. We will be right back with this conversation with Juliet. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. 
I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So one thing you talk about is going no contact. Mm -hmm. At what point did you have that recognition of in order to preserve myself, I've got to put them behind me? How did you come to that realization? And then how did you execute it? I guess it's been about 15 years, almost mm -hmm. maybe 13 years. And so that's probably when I was became very, very clear about what what was mm -hmm. going on. And I really felt like I want I had given enough time. Dev always says we've already had served two life sentences. And so I felt like I've I had given enough and I wanted to surround myself with people who were truly loving and nurturing and where there was a two-way street where I was really loving and giving to them and they were really loving and giving to me. And so once I see something, I can't unsee it. So once I saw it, I really did not want to ever engage again. And I haven't. And I, I, I literally didn't even on my dad's deathbed, and this may be controversial to many people, I did not mm -hmm. go. And I really felt people said, oh, you're going to regret it. I actually don't regret it. I feel like for, for me, it was the right decision. It would have been a lie. It would have been a lie to what our relationship truly was. And I felt like he made his choices in his life and he made his bed and it was for him to lie in that bed. And it wasn't really for me to be there one way or the other, because I felt that the price would again, I would pay a price mm -hmm. for it. And I didn't, didn't want to pay a price for it. It would have been a lie. So for me, it was the right decision not to go. And I have not regretted mm -hmm. that you know, in terms of forgiveness. For me, it really was about like my experience with my parents. I wasn't going to get resolution or peace with them ever. Like that's never going to happen. And once I realized who they, my, my mother's alive, so who they are, who they were, that was never going to happen. The resolution actually had to come in mm -hmm. myself and in my own behavior and my own way that I want to navigate the world and the things that I want to to do and be and and give and uh, experience. And so I feel like, you know, we have this idea. And if if you see someone on their deathbed, they all of a sudden say even the most wonderful thing they've said, you know, what for 35, 45 years, they've behaved one way. And then they have one moment where they say something else, like what, because they're afraid of dying. Like, what does that really mean? I don't think it means anything. So for me, I, I feel like we have this idea about forgiveness. And I know you talk about that too, which in a way is sort of that it, it allows bad behavior. There's certain things that aren't forgivable. So I I think that the peace comes with in your own self and, and in the 
change that you can affect in your own life and in other lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, again, you know, I've spoken widely about this, of the risks of forgiveness in narcissistic relationships, the acknowledgement that it's a personal decision. But if a person's making that decision because they think it's going to change something and many times feel this real grief that their forgiveness has really only resulted in a replaying of the behavior. When you decided to go no contact, both parents are obviously living at the time. Mm-hmm. Did you tell them you were going to do it or did you just sort of fade away? Well, I also went no contact with my sister mm-hmm. as well. And she she has made very different choices and is very similar to, to my parents. And so uh, I did tell my sister that I wanted to surround myself with people who were loving and caring. Uh, I think I sort of faded away and then just stopped I mean, literally was just, I don't, I mean, it was literally for a long time, like just delete. I wouldn't even listen Mm -hmm. or uh, messages or anything, just literally delete and move on to something. Like I literally felt like I have given this so much time in my life. And now that I'm conscious of it, I don't want to give it even a second Mm -hmm. more. So I literally would just be, you know, like, nope delete, mm-hmm. move on to something that's actually sort of going to be positive mm-hmm. and nurturing to someone else or to me. I mean, again, it's not easy to do, which is why a lot of people don't do it. But it sounds like once you did it, it had a huge influence on you. Huge. I mean, everything literally, the word bloomed comes to mind because, uh, and, and I think Deb felt the same way, that there was, I think, in first of all, acknowledging that even if you try not to when you're engaging with people like this, there it reignites a, a futile hope that it's going to be different or it's going to change or you're finally going to get validated or you're going to be loved or like all of, it sort of opens up that that old abyss. And then, you know, everybody, it's interesting because when we talk with the deadheads and the people that have gone no contact and then if they have contact again, they literally end up it's like what you said earlier detoxing Mm -hmm. like it takes a while to sort of they're like oh i was feeling like myself Mm -hmm. i I kind of understood who myself was and all of a sudden i'm feeling really off kilter again and really um insecure Mm -hmm. and really confused and you know it's taken weeks for me to sort of get or or months or however long it takes you know from from exposures obviously there's tactics but i find that you know these people are very good at getting getting in through the cracks. Even if you don't go no contact, but have a period of time where there is no contact with a very antagonistic or toxic person, many people report that they start feeling better, functioning better. I've had many people say that health problems improved really fast, their hair started to grow back, they were sleeping better, working better, and felt more connected to other people. And it would all happen fast. The unfortunate flip side of this is that after a long break from a toxic relationship and then having to be with that person again, even if you practice radical acceptance and maintain realistic expectations, people will report that they feel drained and sick and lethargic once they do need to be with them again. Before you got to no contact with your family, did you attempt to try other strategies? Like, did you say, okay, let me try it this way. Let me try it that way. Or how did you come to that? Because I know a lot of people, they they grapple with it for a while. They say, okay, maybe I just won't go to the holidays. Maybe I just won't talk to them as often. Maybe all this, maybe all that. It's sort of, it's a process. How did you 
get to that point? Did you just go from zero to 60 and say yeah, cold turkey? Or was this a process where you were trying to use other strategies? I think I had used other strategies for a while. And then th th there was a moment where once I really saw and understood who they were, I knew there was nothing there for mm -hmm, me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that all it would be was me literally sort of serving them and their needs. You know, once I, I sort of accepted everything, it, it was almost like a, like a breakup um, that I've had, you know, previous in, it, with relationship breakup where once you kind of see and you go, this is not a healthy interaction, this is not a good match. I what I'm not a person who would ever like once breaking up go like oh we ended up back in bed together or whatever because once I sort of get it it may take me a while mm -hmm. to get it but once I get it I was like yeah this is not and I think there became a point where literally you know that feeling that 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 we were talking about that sort of revulsion feeling and I know you've talked about that when you sort of like, you're like, oh, I've met someone at a thing and I right away, like the hair goes on my back of my neck. Like I know that they're this kind of person and I sort of move away from it even at a party. I know you had said that once to me. Literally the idea of engaging for me literally makes me feel a sense of revulsion and again, kind of nauseousness. Like I just mm -hmm. don't want to mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. Like I, it literally feels in my mm -hmm. body like something where it's like, I, this is not a healthy mm -hmm. thing for me to do. So you did it. And again, many people have shared what you've shared and you had, you, you saw the parallel process because it sounds like Dev got, your husband, Dev got there too. Mm -hmm. So you were able to have mm -hmm. that, that shared experience. Again, I have to tell you, I am actually not a horror or a vampire person because I have my own anxieties and fears from my own history. But I actually enjoyed the movie each time I watched it because I think it became more layered and, and, and more interesting telling to me of sort of the abject terror that in many ways a person who's gone through narcissistic abuse goes through. So I really feel privileged that I've not only had the opportunity to watch it a few times, but even speak with groups alongside you about it. So as we're closing up here, Julia, any any final thoughts? Where can How can people support you in your film? Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, my website is julietlandau.com and we're in the throes of, we've had multiple offers on the film and we just have, uh, are finishing out our festival run, which has been extraordinary. We just won our 37th major award, sweeping the 21 festivals we submitted to and played. I think we have 12 best feature of the festival, nine best actress for me, six best director. It goes on and on, like all, all major awards. And it, so it's been just an unbelievable and humbling and incredible experience that we're really honored to to have have been on. I really think it gives so much more context. And I think for people who are survivors who can say, oh, I see, especially the running voices and how we remain we, we remain in these in these voices and and in our head in these relationships for a very long time. So the 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 film fostered an empathy in a very creative way that I am very grateful that you've sort of contributed to the sort of canon of how we think about narcissism and narcissistic abuse. Thank you so much. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Juliet. First, Juliet talks about this idea of 
contrary action as a tool that has helped her manage her healing from narcissistic relationships. It's a tool that is often suggested in managing anxiety. It's basically doing the thing that we are afraid to do or we're told we couldn't do. It's almost an act of abandon. It can feel like a folly and it can be scary to do these things. But many people in toxic, antagonistic, or narcissistic relationships clip their own wings and believe the negative talk that these relationships fill us up with. You'll never amount to anything. Who do you think you are? You aren't smart enough to do that. Who would ever listen to you? Contrary action may feel like a ridiculous leap of faith, like jumping into the ocean in January. But when you do it, you never know what you may find out about your limitless capacities. In my next takeaway, Juliet talks about the destructive choices she noticed herself making. Many survivors struggle with this. They want to take responsibility for their choices and recognize that they cannot blame another person for the choices they made. And I get that and I understand that. But unpacking consistently self-sabotaging, harmful and destructive choices and connecting the dots, it can be helpful to recognize how often these choices reflect an internalization of a lifetime of invalidation, a working through of old patterns, and a living into the limiting narratives placed on us. Yes, we do need to take responsibility for our choices, but you also have to take the weed out by its roots. And that means understanding the roots so we can understand our choices. And in my next takeaway, she shared how she was so careful about vetting the people that she and her husband hired on their project that they would actually ask themselves, does this person feel comfortable because they are nice and solid or because they represent that old familiar toxic chaos? And in being very careful and checking in with each other, she reflects on building a team which worked well together and was very functional. Whether it is how we choose someone we will have on our team, a partner, or a friend, after a person has survived narcissistic abuse, it becomes important to check in with yourself and with a trusted other. Being discerning is essential. Giving yourself a minute and paying attention to whether you are attracted to toxic familiarity or whether you are recognizing healthy qualities, including compassion, respect, integrity, kindness, and self-awareness. And in my last takeaway, Juliet said that no contact ended up being the strategy that worked best for her. However, this is not an option open to most people or that even feels comfortable for many people. There are so many reasons people cannot do no contact co-parenting, caregiving responsibilities, culture, religion, practical factors, or you just don't want to. Healing and growth are possible even if you can't or don't want to go no contact. It's important to recognize that what works for one person won't necessarily work for another. And also that you may go no contact in some former relationships, but not in others, and have to learn other techniques such as boundaries, acceptance, disengagement, and rely on tools such as therapy and support in relationships in which you remain low contact 
or even if you have regular contact. One size does not fit all when it comes to healing. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.